Hey, thank you very much and thanks for tuning in to The Conversations with Angus Charles. And as I always say, it's a privilege to have you tune into the show. You didn't have to listen to this show. You didn't have to listen to me rumbling on, but hey, you always do. And for that, I say a very big thank you. And as you know, on this show, we bring in people who um, have things to share with us that would have an impact on your life. There are people that, in my opinion... Um, have done so much in our communities and we just want to hear from them so we bring them in here and we have a conversation with them and i'm so excited about today's guest um he might not know this but he's one of my influences in broadcasting i've been following what he's been doing for years i love his music as well in fact we've just heard one of his songs um, a song called here and real and it happens to be one of my favorite worship songs ever Please help me welcome to the show. I call him the chief. We're talking about Muiwa Olariwaju. Good evening, good afternoon, good morning, whatever time we're listening to this show. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Prof. I'm grateful to be here. Um, yeah, thank you for having me on. Look, that voice, that voice, you know, guys, I hear that voice and it just takes me to radio. It just takes me to radio, you know. Did, did, you, did you ever have to do any sort of any training on your voice? Please direct me so I can do that as well. <laughs> no, I didn't. I was just born born like this. Interesting enough, my second son, my 10-year-old, he, he, he has a, a similar timbre in his voice and has, oddly has since he was a baby. He was, he was always very... Uh, quite deep for his age, quite gravelly. Um, so who knows? It may be following me into radio. <laughs> who knows? Who knows? But that's sort of probably a family business kind of thing, isn't it? Because that's what usually happens, isn't it? So would you would you actually actively encourage any of your children to get into that? Into broadcasting? Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's odd because I think they're already doing it without me encouraging them at all. I mean, my, my, my thing is... Um, you know, like most people say in, in our in our free world that we're in, you know, I want to follow the kids' passion, passions. But for for me, uh, the the interesting uh, trajectory. My mother was a radio broadcaster. Now I didn't want to follow into radio. Radio was not um, broadcasting was not on my radar. I wanted to do music, and then she made me do business studies. Then I fell in. Then I started doing music. I fell into radio broadcasting and fell into TV. And interesting enough, my brother then followed me into radio and TV, and he's a singer as well. Uh, and so with my children, I've, I've noticed, I mean, during the lockdown, I noticed that my children just became very um, uh, passionate and very proficient with shooting content and more importantly, editing. Wow. On wow. Watch how these kids... I mean, they 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 started a, a, a YouTube channel. Well, I started a YouTube channel for them uh, to put their content on. But watching how these kids were, they were filming stuff and editing it, and it was just it was just mind blowing. These kids, I mean, 12, 12 and nine at that point. So, so I think they may be following me already, uh, from following their mother too, because she's an actress and and studied broadcasting. So wow, wow. Well, I mean, it's very interesting. You should talk about your kids already shooting films and editing and stuff like that. I mean, you're doing creative stuff. But when you were growing up, mm -hmm. was that something that you, th I, I mean, your parents would have frowned upon? Because I, I know what my parents wanted me to be. I mean, you know, what I'm doing now is completely different from what the ideas that my parents want. I actually came to this country to study accounting. But that never happened, you know. So, is that? I know for most African parents, you have to be an accountant, you have to be a doctor, you have to be, you know, well, an academic. But I think for for you, for you, you you are there already because you're you're a professor, you're an academic in a in a in a higher education, and then you're moonlighting with with broadcasting. So, <laughs> so gay, you you get a pass, but. Um, for me, uh, like any other African parent, it was not, I mean, the only thing, the only thing that was different on my radar for my parents, my parents, my father was a, a headmaster of a school and he had retired 
and my mother was a radio broadcaster. She had retired and they were now farmers. So the plan from when I was younger that I'm, I'm familiar with from them, their thoughts was that I would go to Germany and uh, study uh, uh, farming and then come, come back and take over the family business. Um, so music and broadcasting, definitely, definitely, they, they, weren't even, they weren't even an imagination. And if they were, those imaginations would have been beat out of you by Kaya De Karimu or Larry Wajibu. Oh, my goodness. What do you think has changed? Um, in in terms of my family or... or in, in terms of uh, as a parent, in terms of our approach to how we direct our kids and, you know, the things that we would want. I, I'll give you an example. A friend of mine, his, um, his, his, his daughter, um, does, well, she's an influencer on social media. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's stuff that people talk proudly about that these days. But I would have imagined, you know, when I was growing up, if I had said, well, there wasn't the internet anyway, but mm-hmm. if I had said I wanted to do something like that, my parents would have said to me, boy, go get a proper job. So what do you think has changed? Obviously, technology has taken over, but what do you think has changed in the psyche of a lot of parents? Well, uh, a lot has changed, but a lot hasn't changed, I would suggest. A lot has changed in, in terms of, uh, I guess, the more uh, the more we know, the more our world, uh, our lives are saturated by popular culture, um, and uh, uh, entertainment culture, the more it becomes the norm, as it were. But I think at the same time, it hasn't changed. I'll give you a, an example. There's a chap called Dad, Daddy Freeze who's... Um, yeah, a, yeah I, know, I know about Daddy Freeze. Okay, and uh, <laughs> he's, for those who don't know, he's a personality out in Nigeria. He's a radio personality, but also very outspoken mm. type in terms of church matters about you know, certain subjects. So he, of course, had spoken very loudly and brashly about on some su- subjects about uh, uh, bishop, tithing and, you know, issues to do with finances in the church and all of that yeah. stuff. But specifically about Bishop Oyedepo, where he'd been, he'd, he'd, he'd been, he'd been a little rude, actually, to be honest. But that video was a few years back. Now, uh-huh. Bishop Oyedepo's uh, Sons in the Gospel, who's a, a very well-respected, very well-known globally, uh, uh, Pastor David Ibiomi, who has a church of, you know, over 70,000 people. I mean, his ministry is well-known in America, uh, all over Europe. And he comes up to uh, to address the issue and he has a go at uh, Daddy Freeze. One of the things he says whilst he's, uh, he's lobbing his, uh, his attacks at him is he, he goes on a tirade about Daddy Freeze being an on-air personality, uh, which is what they call him in Nigeria, OAPs. And he says, but but what? He, and then he goes on to ridicule him as that, saying, what's what's he? He's, he's a nothing. He's an on-air personality. He does radio, um, which uh, he threw major shade on it and, and reflected his thoughts and 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 obviously his thoughts won't be just solitary his there'll be others and and Pastor Biomi is, is a fairly young man uh so in terms of the culture and the mindset there uh it's still very much looking at the creative arts as nah that's just yeah, yeah that's, second second rate yeah, it's not get get a real job, you know, be, mm. be a doctor or something, even though he's in a, a contemporary setting. So uh, quite, I mean, and, and, and it's not just him. I mean, I have uh, friends that there's one of my dear friends who uh, we used to sing in a group together. Uh, so she's not, I mean, she's, uh, she's a, a little bit older than me, maybe a few years older than me. Um, and uh, for years, her husband would see me and ask, so what do you do again? <laughs> he, couldn't he couldn't understand, uh, uh, I mean, the idea of someone being making music and doing broadcasting, even though he would consume music on his TV, he would buy the records, he would dance to it. Yet 
in his mind, uh, you needed a real job. It still, so, it still wasn't a proper job. Exactly. So, so I think to a degree, things have changed in as much as uh, the, the popular culture saturated our lives. Entertainment culture is really, I mean, Big Brother is, is at the fore. That's how we, some of us frame our, 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 our thoughts in terms mm. of what we, what we, even to, to what we eat sometimes. But at the same time, there's still a degree of, um, of, uh, uh, yeah, shade being that's thrown on, on arty stuff especially when it comes to, to gospel things. Your music career, how has that journey been so far? It's been amazing. It's been, a, it's been, a, it's been tough, uh, but at the same time, it's been incredibly fulfilling um, to have had the opportunity to, to do the things that we've done. Um, and, and the reality is actually some of the things by the grace of God we managed to achieve haven't been replicated. I mean, to be the uh, the 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 first uh, international um, act to be on BT celebration of gospel that was a that was a great moment for us. Um, to be the first to sell out, you know, Indigo Two at the O2 that was that was incredible for us to be the first to sell out Apollo with five thousand people without any American names on it. You know, I, I, I tell you what, I tell you what, because um, I was at that concert and me and the missus, when we got to the venue and we saw the queues outside, I was like, whoa, what is going on here? At, at any point in time during you organizing that event or on, the, or on that night, did you, did you, did you feel that sense of awe about what was actually happening on the no, night? No, not at all. Not at all. I, I tell you, one of the sad things about the journey for me is that, um, as we were going through it, I didn't really um, appreciate the magnitude of the moment, and and it's this, it was the same. And I and and it only hit me years later. The first time that happened was that it hit me was when I went to Indigo Two. I forget what event was happening in there, and I came into the into the venue first into the O2 area, and I looked and I thought, oh my goodness. Oh gosh, our video was up on that big screen outside. Wow. So then then I carried on. I, I walked into the venue, walked to the VIP area. I'm like, wow, this place is beautiful. I looked down, I thought, wow, this place is amazing. And it dawned on me that Muiwa, you sold out this place, but you never experienced the place. Wow. And the same thing happened again at the Apollo. Uh and and I realized that um, we were in the moment, but we weren't in the moment. Um, uh, so it's something that I've tried to to get better at. You know, I, I had a conversation with Steve Harvey recently, and uh, and I asked him. And Steve Harvey, I mean, he's as big as they come. He's Steve, oh, Steve Harvey, oh. Mister Mister Number One Entertainment in America. And I said to him, um, at what point? was he able to enjoy the moment? And he paused for what seemed like an eternity. And he leaned back, he said, man, you know, not until 17 years ago, Steve Harvey has been in the entertainment industry for over 30 years. He's been at the top for well over 20 something years, if not more. But it wasn't until recently that he learned how to enjoy the moment. So it's not, it's a thing that's, that's difficult to do. So, so for, 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 for me, the journey um, on your question of music, it's been, it's been the best of times, been the worst of times, you know, it's, uh, it's been incredible. But now where, where I am looking back, um, I breathe and I say, wow, wow, we, we did we did something and then we're, we're still working on something because the pro project i'm working on at the moment i'm just trying to lock down uh, uh funding for it which is half a million pounds that's more oh my goodness the, that's more than anything we've ever done hmm. which indicates hmm. the magnitude of the project but, but you know so so but 
hopefully this will be better in that now I'm better at enjoying the moment you know well, I mean, talking about enjoying the moment, I mean, you've had some amazing moments and, you know, accolades and everything. And you, you started mentioning some of them and I rudely kind of interrupted with a question. Um, but, you know, you've won many, many, many awards. I mean, we can um, and you've achieved so much in your career as a musician. Um, you've been a judge on um, on a lot of talent shows. Well, most notable one being the BBC. One. You've actually been on Sunday Best as well. So you've done B- you, you've done BBC One's talent show. You've done other as well. But what people, uh, well, people have probably heard about it. You were recently honoured by the Queen of England, Muiwa Olariwaju OBE. Let me tell you, <laughs> that's got a ring to it. It's got a ring to it. Let me tell you, it was a, it was an absolute shock. And and I have to say it was is a huge honor for me. Um, it came, it, it's funny, it came out of the blue. Um, but here's an interesting thing, Uncle Charles. Um, uh, my I'm a, I'm a Christian. My worldview is Christian. I believe oh. in God. I believe God speaks and and all that. And would you believe it that um, on the twenty third of June, twenty fourteen. Um, at 9.32 a.m. exactly. And I know because I've got it right here in front of me. I got this text right, from a, a friend of mine who I don't see very often. And he calls me by my nickname. Says, hi, Atom. Hope you're well. I just want to say... Ah, hang on. Before you even carry on, you've just said something because whenever I call you and it goes to your uh, voicemail, it says Atom here. So that's where it comes from. <laughs> That was my nickname. I just thought, you know, it was something that you just said. So it was actually your nickname. All oh, right, because I'm gonna I'm gonna call you Chief Atom. Please carry on. <laughs> yeah, the person that calls me Atom is uh, Paul. I did parsing. Uh, right. Okay. So 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 Vince sent this message 23rd of June 2014 at 9:32 in the morning. Hi Atom, hope you're well. I just want to say that since we spoke last week. I've had a constant image of you receiving an award. It's in form of an official recognition from the Queen's office. Please do pray over it or take it to your leadership for counsel. I know I just had to pass it on for God to release me from it. Bless me, Vince. Now, I read that text and I thought in my head, what is this black man been smoking? I, honestly, I laughed. I thought, ridiculous. I mean, what's in Queen? A recognition for what? You know? Almost six years to the date, the letter comes from Downing Street. Wow. And I almost fainted. It was so, it was so shocking. I could, I read the first paragraph and I sent it to my wife by email. I said, babe, just have a look at it. Is this saying what I think it's saying? And she called me back. Uh Is this some scam letter or something? (laughs) You know, she called me back and she said, what is wrong with you? The letter clearly says you mustn't discuss it with your family or friend. <laughs> I said, my friend, you're not my family, you're my wife. She said, it's scared, you can't discuss it with anyone. Oh my goodness. So for, for months, I had to sit on it. I couldn't tell anyone um, because you're told expressly you can't tell anyone. But for me, I, and you know, when the letter came, I remembered that someone had said something to me, but I couldn't remember who it was until maybe two weeks before it, the announcement was made publicly. Then I remembered Vince Hudson. Then I went in my text messages to look and there it was. And I thought, OMG, God is alive. But, you know, it's something that I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful for, hugely proud of for, for many reasons. Um, one of which is uh, I remember bumping into one of my lecturers from university. I studied music at Westminster University. And uh, my, my lecturer is a guy called, one of them was a guy called Michael Riley. Um, there's another one called um, Keith Harris, who's also an OBE actually, but Keith Harris was Stevie Wonder's manager, but, but looked after me for a while. But Michael Riley was a renowned producer. Um, he did a lot of big records like Return of the Mac for Mark Morrison. and all. Yeah. He was one of the founder. He, he actually was a founder of Reggae Philharmonic Orchestra. Remember he bumped into me at, Waterloo Station 
And, oh, Muyu, how you doing? I'm, I'm great. I'm great. You know, what are you doing? I said, oh, we're doing this record and working on this uh, live concert. And, you know, he said to me, he said, yeah, Muyu, well, you know, you guys who do gospel, you know, you no one's paying attention. You just do it in a small silo. And, and whilst what he said was true to a degree, because, you know, it's a small genre compared to pop, mm. I just thought, wow. Okay. But then I thought, you know what? I'm not doing it for the masses to pay attention. You know, I'm doing it for those who, who want to be part of the remnants going to heaven to take attention. So, so I went, but so when this came in, I remembered that conversation. I thought, Ooh, indeed, who's paying attention? Because the, the honor is for services to music, not for wow. broadcasting. So for me, it was, it was, it was huge. And, and, you know, the other thing is, I mean, nobody in my village gets ever got one. I mean, my Pastor Matthew Shimolo and I are from the same village, and I know that no one in our village has one. So I am. <laughs> Listen, congratulations, congratulations, because you know that that is that tells you that people are watching, and that's scary. It's it's scary, and that's scary, and, isn't it? It's we, scary. We, it's, it's a big responsibility. Do, do you do you feel that sense of responsibility up on your shoulders then? Not at the moment. I'm just elated, man. I just, you know, I, I'm enjoying it. I've been walking around my, my house. Into my house. <laughs> you know who I am. Uh, so, <laughs> so does that mean, you, are you going to have to add that to your passport as well? Your Muiwa Olariwaju OBE. Does that go in your passport or you know, not, not yet? Uncle Charles, <laughs> even the places I'm supposed to go, I'm going to put it there. <laughs> you, know, you know how us Nigerians do uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why not? Why not? Why not? I introduce myself as it all be here. You've you've earned it. You've earned it. So we 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 spoke about your life as a musician, and you have a life in media as well. You present one of the biggest TV shows on earth, which is Turning Point. And I'm talking, you know, it goes out to so many countries. You you'll be able to give me the number of countries that it goes out to. Uh, one of the biggest shows. Which of these do you actually enjoy being on radio, being on TV or on stage doing music? Which one do you enjoy? Well, if we're talking about my favorite, if 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 I came to uh yeah to if I had to walk a plank and they said pick one, it'll be the music. It'll be the music. Right. Yeah. Right. Even though even though I I enjoy deeply, I mean I enjoy I'm all I'm just sitting there is doing is just talking. You know, I go on TV and, you know, I've got clothes made for me and all that. Of course, you enjoy that. But for me, uh in my deepest heart, making music and getting on stage and recreating that and uh yeah, music definitely is, would be my number one love. A, a, a pastor friend of mine, um, you know, I was in conversation with him sometime back and he made this statement that with regards to what we do here on earth, it falls into three categories. One, your, your job is either a duty or you're doing something under duress. Or the third one is something out of desire. So all these areas that I've, I've spoken about, what do you think falls under which category? What is a duty? What are you doing under duress and what is a desire? <laughs> All of the above that I do are desire. No, I mean, I, I I would do I would do the music, the broadcasting for free if if yeah if, if yeah. I had to. Um uh, it just happens that I'm I'm fortunate that I get paid for, for it. So there's no the duress I had in my in my life was when I was still at school when I was a kitchen porter watching washing uh, pots that were bigger than me. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was the duress moment in my life. Uh the so yeah, it's it's my 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 journey is just been pure desire. Wow, wow, that that's that's amazing. Because there's one thing as well that he drew my attention to. He said to me, you know, for most people uh, doing the things that they desire. Funny enough, apart from getting the fulfillment for, from doing that, 
they get paid the most as well. And he gave me an example of F1 drivers, golfers, you know, footballers. These are things that people desire to do. And oftentimes we get bogged down doing duties and doing things under duress. Would, would, would that be something that you'd agree with? Absolutely. Of course, it rings. All you have to do is look at the data, man. We, uh, the, the most of the population are uh, just on the grind uh, doing, I mean, you know, the amount of people who say to me, oh, I wish I could do what you do. And these are people in, in, in prestigious jobs and they're 95. Um, but seemingly they, they wanted the freedom of being a creative being. Um, but you know, it's, it's, at the end of a day, you know, uh, you, you, you follow your, your passion and, uh, you pay the price and you, you you might be rewarded for it. You know, the the scripture says to them who overcome, I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life. So it's if you're willing to take the risk. You're somebody who wears your Africanness without shame with pride you know ever since i've known you you've always had a scarf which was an ankara you know which typically represents africa really but then i see muiwa who's taking his kids fencing which is it they don't it doesn't get any english than that how do you reconcile how do you reconcile those two positions and and why well you know for for me um i was not always um uh i was not always fiercely proud of uh, of my um uh of my uh, culture I, I i i i mean I, I i was always proud to be in I, I had no idea of what uh racism or being different was until i was sent back to this country uh then i i I went through the pain of being ridiculed for being black and for being specifically African, which made me want to, I wanted to change. I wanted to become a West Indian. Um, but then I came to my senses that, you know, you know, some, well, I came to my senses because first I thought if my mother ever f- found out that I was trying to be Stephen Byright, she'll beat me black. I <laughs> <laughs> won't control, you know? And, uh, and so, so, so that then, then I came, I came, as I grew older, I became clear in my mind that God made no mistakes making me an African. And so, so, so then I decided, you know what? I'm comfortably. Have you have you ever had any occasion where you've had to spell all those or written this your name in full? <laughs> that would be interesting. Well, I've, I've had a, a few people try to engage and then just just give up. But uh, for me, there was no. Uh, but then I, my children fence. For, but for me, there is no. There are no contradictions there because. Uh, my children, they they are clear in their identity. They are um, African, but they're British. Now, mm. um, of course, you know, we would like to, to think that fencing is a preserve of the, the British. But, you know, if we wanted to be purist about it, we're talking... Uh, really before the British, it was the Spanish and we could go further. But as it stands, it's, it, it really, I, I understand it represents um, English and, and to, to, and to, in some circles, it might be deemed as, as high art. Now, the reason my, my boys do it because uh, they don't do soccer. They two left feet, because unfortunately their mum doesn't right. soccer. Right. Uh, my second son, I, I thought I'd try him in rugby because he was a little rugged and, you know, but after the first tackle, the boy said never again, you know. Um, but I noticed the two of them, they they always had this habit of, of jousting, it seems. So I thought, okay, let me try them with fencing. And they took to it and they were very good at it. Uh, and, and of course, you know, also that meant... Uh, the 
the opportunities they had also. Because here's the other thing for for a lot of us who are who are black and who are African, you have to figure out the rules of the game in the environment you're in, and how to best navigate. And so for my sons, it was necessary that for them to be in the environment, in the educational environments that I wanted, that I thought was best for them, I needed to give them as many uh, uh, opportunities as they could and to give them the opportunity to be in that space. And fencing did that. Uh, Fencing was one of the things that did that for them. So, but I I don't, I don't see it as a contradiction at all because, you know, you can be, uh, fiercely African and and you know be one of the great great greatest jousters or you can you know I mean my wife and I we used to go skiing every year until my first son got uh, was born and for us I mean <laughs> I remember people in the family I remember my uncle uh, my uncle was a very educated man and he was just, I mean very educated <laughs> he said why are you people going going skiing is there not enough ways for a black person to die (laughs) (laughs) i mean that kind of takes me to um, a question that i was going to ask you know when we were talking about fencing um because obviously you know a lot of black people would not go skiing um would would rather go back home and spend a few weeks you know eat our local food and then come back again and carry on with our work Mm -hmm. but you know in doing these things sending your kids off fencing um, or going skiing, have you ever had um, a, a a cool runnings moment where you you something woke you up and I don't know, have you ever had such such a moment anyway? Now, now you'll have to educate me. Cool runnings moment. I I, I remember the the movie. Okay, so cool runnings. I mean, if you remember, cool runnings was a movie about um, a group of Jamaicans who actually went to um, winter Olympic games and were involved in a, a, a sport which was basically they had no idea about what to do, mm-hmm. and um, even though they didn't win, they made such strides in the competition that people actually loved them, and it kind of opened the eyes of people to the fact that you can be put in an alien environment and still thrive. Only if given the chance. So, so I mean, um, well, basically, pe- people were making fun of them initially, but then later on, you know. It, so, in terms of that, um, fortunately, no. I mean, because when when I started skiing, um, all the pists I would go to, of course, they were mostly mostly white folks, but there was always a a group of black black professionals. So maybe people laugh. We just didn't see them. You know, <laughs> it was your problem, yeah. your problem. And and then when my wife and I, the, the pissed what we probably enjoyed the most was in Dubai. And ain't nobody going to be laughing at you there. Because nah, not, not in Dubai. Everybody's cool. So that that was, so, so yeah, we, we never did quite... Uh, Ex, you know, experience that, and and if 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 it had happened, then you know we were oblivious to it. Um, I mean, you know, just from what you're saying, then can I? Is it safe to conclude that you are somebody who is actually comfortable and confident in yourself? Ah, and how how important is that? Very. Com- Let me tell you something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think, and and this is this is one of the things with. With the upbringing of of my sons, I I, I realized because um, I would ask myself the question, uh, why am I the way I? I mean, I have my insecurities, but one thing I I realized was I was comfortable in my skin, whether I was in Downing Street or I, I remember the first time I was invited to Downing Street and my um, I got dressed and I put my red shoes on. I remember that photograph very well. <laughs> and, and my wife says to me, where are you going? Why can you? I said, I could, <laughs> I, I'm sorry, honey. I'm the visitor. They they invited me. If they have a problem with my shoes, when I get to the door, I'll come back home. I mean, <laughs> I feel I need to, to, uh, to. She said, but you know, red, red is labor. And this is a conservative government. I said, even, even better still, you know. So, so for me, I, I, I find that um, I don't, and uh, I, I don't make any apologies for who I am. And I, I trace that back to my upbringing. Um, you would find most generally uh, Nigerians and most generally, Afri- I can speak intelligently of West Africans. You'd find most most West Africans 
are they might not be as as uh, loud as Nigerians, but they're very confident people. Even those who can't speak uh, as well as others, because that sometimes is the passport that people use to to decide who gets and who doesn't. Uh, but what you realize is for a lot of black Africans, because um, of the environment you come from where, uh, and the, the stability you had in terms of identity, it meant you walked different. Uh, so for me, uh, I was, yeah, I was quite clear about who I am and where I fit. I mean, growing up, um, before I came back to this country, what would, you know, I would have so so yes like like most of the people that uh we would know who come from Africa they went to private schools boarding schools and all that so you had tuition and you had people who told you you are leaders for tomorrow i mean you had you had teachers who teach teachers how to write and and teachers who to teach us how to walk and you know uh, shoulders high chest out Olairaj, you walk like you're a king. And, you know, those kind of things yeah. drummed into you as a young person. And and which is what makes the trauma of coming back here even more intense. Because you come here and the first thing you hear is, you effing monkey. Yeah, hold on. Okay. That's not what they told us growing up. We were told uh-huh. for the future. But now you're in an environment where you're told... My friend, just go and pick up the the the, the broom and sweep the something. You know, it's like coming to America, isn't it? You know, you come in as a prince, and then you're giving a mop to mop <laughs> in a fast food shop. I mean, that's a bit of um, a climb down, isn't it? It is. It is, and it, and, it, and it jolts you. It jolts you your reality, and you have to have that moment. Uh, where, and and you know, it's sad because the amount of people of 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 standing people who may not even be royalty but people who have who have uh, made their way uh, either through academics or whatever and who have been displaced into this place and they've just been because of who they are how they look i mean i've been in taxis when I've engaged in conversation with a driver only to find that the driver used to be an ambassador of an african country yeah yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, you know, as you said, you know, I, I, I teach in a university and I've met African students who actually have a PhD, you know, and as far and as have, I've come to this country and have been security guards for a while and decided to change direction. So gone back to university again. I mean, my, my in-laws, uh, my father-in-law passed not so long ago, but before he passed, one of the carers that he had was an uh, a Nigerian brother who had been introduced by someone in church. Um, and, I mean, he was caring for my father-in-law quietly. I mean, did everything, you know, uh, cleaned him, you know, all, all the all the stuff uh, um, uh, carers would do. And one stage discovered that actually this man was uh, a, 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 a university uh professor wow um who's i think he's uh he's his area was uh, pharmacy or pharmaceuticals or something like that but because he came to this country and needed to make ends meet couldn't couldn't you know get anything he did what he had to and and there are loads of people work i mean i saw a piece on cnn just this morning um, of one of their reporters following a Venezuelan man who was driving an Uber. And the Venezuelan man was saying, um, listen, back in my country, I was an, uh, an accountant or something like that. You know, no, no, he was a lawyer. He was a lawyer. He was a lawyer. And, you know, he's, he's come here. His uh, asylum status is still being worked through. Actually, in the meantime, he was imprisoned for a month and he describes the thing that's the things that happened to him in prison. And it's just horrific. And there are people like that all over the world who mm. come from mm. their own background and they're they're successful, they're upstanding people, but being displaced once they get into a different environment. 
uh, it's a harsh reality that they have to face. It is. It is a harsh reality, and I think the moral of the story in in that aspect is that you never know who you're having a chat with. When the next time you sit in an Uber, you never know who the driver is, and therefore treat everyone with respect. Really, Absolutely. and I mean, you know, going going back to talking about being comfortable in yourself, um, I had uh, I don't know if I can describe that as an epiphany, but um, I was on a train, and this lady african lady walked on the train and she had her child tied in a cloth on her back you know how we do it back home yep yep and this was a packed train and i was like oh my god you know how can this be happening here and it was as if god was trying to open my eyes to something the next stop we got to the next stop and a white person comes on the train and he had his child on his back in um, some kind of um, apparatus, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. which was, I mean, I don't know what it's called, but it's designed in such a way that you wear it on your back and your child sits in. And I'm thinking, hang on, this is exactly the same thing. And this was probably designed as a result of somebody going to Africa and seeing our women carrying their children on their backs and decided, okay, let me take it one step further. And I'm thinking, you know what? The next time I see anybody doing this in town, hey, this is going to be normal. And, you know, I don't bat an eyelid now any time I see things like that. So it's about being um, comfortable with who we, we are and what we have and, you know, just accept ourselves as who we are. I mean, I don't know what you think about that, Reid. No, no, I, to- I totally agree because, uh, unfortunately, what, what, what's happened is uh, a miseducation of, of the masses where, uh, on, on a very crude note, uh, white is right. Uh, and uh, what, you, what you have from Africa or whatever is, is, uh, is uh, antiquated. Mm-hmm. So when when you look at the the uh, the baby pouch or the baby sling, um, it was it was just adapted, like you said, yeah. it was adapted, um, and and it's based on we, we how we carry children in in Africa on on the back is I mean that we've done that forever. It's it's because the child is is best best held. And it's skin to skin, and that's that's based on mm. on, on the uh, what what we observed of nature, uh, on how animals uh, hold it. Because if we if we typically, you know, what with with our Renaissance culture, we were trying to take everything back to its original form. Uh, you would find that people making shoes want to make it more like your feet. Uh, yeah. because it's more natural. So you find a lot of stuff, we look at nature and then we try and copy it. But in nature, the animal, the way that, I mean, you look at the, the kangaroo, how it carries baby. You look at the, the, uh, the uh, monkeys, how they carry their baby. It's, it's just like that. So we've been doing that for a while, but uh, the, the educated ones in the West had all sorts of gadgets. And then over time, as they become more enlightened, they think, okay, Actually, the better way to carry a child is a pouch. It's, and so what we have is remodeled um, because actually uh, the way, and the funny thing is the way we carry children in, in those slings in Africa, is the same way they do it in Korea, you know, uh, and, and in places like Japan. But we, yeah. And, and this, this very thing you mentioned, it's so common in different parts of life where we've become, um, because we don't quite understand our history and the the power of the narrative that informs our culture. Um, so we become ashamed of it because we've been we've been now taught by MTV and Re- we've been reconditioned. We've been conditioned that this is it. You know, uh, you know, you you a man must wear a tie and and trousers uh for him to be smart uh and a woman was must wear a skirt uh yet um uh, and and when you when when we don't see that or, or you know they went and told us that yeah men are wearing skirts in scotland is fine you know so it's just about 
I, I think one of the things I'm grateful for, for the moment we're in in history is where things are so easily found. You know, you can Google a thing and find at least, I mean, you have to research to make sure the answer is, is, is correct, but you can find the answer. You can put YouTube on and learn in quick 15 minutes, the background of this, where it came from, you know, and, and feel a bit more pride about who you are and where you're coming from. Most definitely, most definitely. Well, if you've just um, tuned in or if you've just logged on, um, thank you very much. I'm, I'm, I'm in conversation here with um, Muiwa, praise and worship leader, radio presenter, uh, media executive. Uh, you know, the man wears so many different hats. I don't know how he does that. I don't know if he has a different colored hat for a different day. I have no idea. Uh, but we, we've been talking about culture. We've been talking about family. We've been talking about, um, you know, all kinds of things on here. Um, my final question to you is, if you were to live your life over again, what would you do differently? If I were to live my life over again, what would I do differently? Definitely my uh, student's loan, oh, students, <laughs> my student's grant. Right, I, okay. I, I'm of the generation where we used to get grants. You got grants, yes. So, um, my student's grant, I would, I would have invested in buying properties. Oh, wow, it, yeah. Definitely. Um, uh, what would I have done different? I would... I would definitely, I mean, there's not much that I would change. I would probably, I would invest more and spend less on designer wear. I would <laughs> less uh, paying attention to other people's opinions and spend more time reading. I'll spend more time with the elders uh, just to hear their thoughts. I would chase after them to to gain from their wisdom as opposed to, hoping that someone would say something to me if I was going wrong. So those are some of the things that I, I would, I would do different, but in terms of career, nah. Muiwa, listen, thank you very much. Thanks for making time to talk to us over two shows. I am very, very grateful. And um, we're not going to wait until um, you get an MBE or whatever, before we bring you back again. I'm sure we'll have another chat very, very soon. And can I just say, a well, massive thank for, you to just you. for your knowledge that the, 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 the i've already passed the mb because it's mb ob it's mb ob i always get it wrong i get it wrong <laughs> your knighthood i was talking about i was i met your knighthood <laughs> I, as yeah as, as, i always get it the wrong way around <laughs> so uh, please forgive me Please forgive me. And now, because I, I think the other time I was trying to work it out and I know the O comes before, uh, comes after the M. And I think I'll go back to that. That would make me remember it. Uh, but thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right.